Take your Bibles tonight and turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We'll begin in verse 21 as tonight we look at how the gospel can impact all areas of our lives. It can impact the culture and it can impact the economy itself. As you look at the gospel's work as it continues to move forth, you see its impact upon people's lives. I want, to, I want you to see as we pick up with Paul's ministry there at Ephesus. Remember, he was the pastor of Ephesus for approximately two years. It's really the longest ministry that Paul had in one place. Uh, later on, we'll come back as we study through this book and we'll see his tender words toward the elders of Ephesus and how he had loved them, how he had placed his life there, how he had taught before them, and how he had continued to live a life of an example, a godly example before who they were. I want you to see in verse 21, as he's there, as he's teaching, as he's preaching, it says, when these things were accomplished, that is, the word of God was continuing to grow, the ministry was expanding, it says, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, stop there a moment. Notice how the Spirit of God continues to lead Paul. To me, it is a marvelous realization to know that Paul, the apostle, was led by the Holy Spirit each and every way. There were times, of course, we've seen in this passage, in this book in particular, where the Holy Spirit said, no, Paul, you can't go. When he had hoped to go, when he had hoped to be able to travel to certain areas, the Holy Spirit said no, and he was sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit continued to empower him and to move him into different areas. Now, when you look at this book, it's entitled Acts. Uh, some people have seen that title, Acts, and they've interpreted it, they've seen it as the Acts of the Apostles. And classically speaking, that is the way it is to be understood. But you could very well say that what we are seeing in this book is not just the acts of the apostles. The acts of the Holy Spirit is being demonstrated. How the acts of the Holy Spirit are demonstrating themselves before the people. And here, Paul is being moved by the Spirit. He has a Spirit-led vision. Now look. We have to recognize that all, all of our lives, we plan and we purpose and we hope that these were the things that we we're going to do, but we always want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leadership, right? You know, a few weeks ago, for example, we presented to you a strategic plan, and that is what we believe the Spirit is leading us to do. But at the same time, we want to be, we want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leadership in our lives as we are led by the Scripture, as we are led by the Spirit. So here it says, Paul says, I believe that eventually I am to go to Rome. Rome being the center of the empire at that time. Remember, the gospel is going forth from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, the uttermost parts would be like Rome, the center of the empire. And that's where we're going to see Paul destined to wind up at the end of this book. He's going to be moved because there's a spirit empowered vision for him to share the gospel in Rome. He recognizes that in verse 21. Verse 22, so he went into Macedonia to 
two of those who ministered to him. He sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. So get this. There's a great commotion about the church. Here it's called the way. The, that faith, that new group of believers, something's going on. They're causing a commotion. Must be Baptist folks, right? They're causing issues in the community. It says in verse 24, For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana or Artemis, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Must have been some Baptists in the audience as well. They didn't know why they were there. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude and the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hands and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So get this. Paul's going about his ministry. He's teaching. He's pastoring the people at Ephesus. And at some point, there comes this commotion. There's this disturbance. There's this issue. What happens is that those individuals who are... Demetrius and others who are making these shrines, they're silver workers. They are being put out of business. Their business is being threatened by the gospel. And they begin to they begin to get together, organize with other individuals, and say, if we do not stop Paul right now and his associates, we will not have a livelihood. And not only will we not have a livelihood, but the pagan temples will be empty if we continue on like this. We've got to do something. So it says that he, he brings them all together. And they're all there crying out, the assembly is great. They know that they're against Paul. They don't know all why they're against Paul, but they're all against Paul. And they're all against the gospel. And they're all against what's happening in this great commotion things you know as we read this story we should be reminded i think of a couple of truths one is that when the gospel impacts us it should impact the culture around us when the gospel has changed us it should work itself out of us to change the context that we find ourselves in the gospel has a life changing effect upon anything and anyone it touches the gospel 
the good news, Jesus Christ. It should change who we are, and it should change those we come into contact with. Now, think about this culture. This is a culture that is pre-Christian. It has not encountered the very active and work, active work of Jesus Christ. It has not done that yet. But now it's being introduced to Christ and how that life plays out among the citizenry. It demonstrates how Christ can transform people's lives. And as Christ is transforming people's lives, they're living differently. What a novel idea. That when Christ transforms a person's life, they're going to be different. You know, that is still the truth that we should be preaching and teaching today. Is that when Jesus comes into a person's life, he does not just leave us where we are. He brings us to a different place. He, he brings us to maturity in him as we grow in him. You see, Jesus loves you so much that he is not willing to leave you where you are. But he is destined, he, he is purposing for you that you will be changed and transformed into his image. And that's the ultimate goal of every believer, right? We'll look more like him today than we did yesterday. And one of these days, when we do step into eternity, the scripture says that we will look like him. We'll be totally transformed and changed into his image. You see, Christ wants to work within us to transform us now so that we will see transformation in our communities, in our families, in everything that we come in contact with. God would change us. The question today, or, or perhaps the concern that we should have today, is that we are calling people to faith, but we're not calling them to transformation and change. Now, what does that mean? Well, we, we say... We want you to assent that Jesus is Lord. And sometimes it's just a mental assent today. It's not accompanied by repentance. Repentance is what? Repentance is saying, yes, I accept you as Jesus and Lord. I love you. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. That is repentance. And true salvation always finds repentance as an essential ingredient. And who we are. Repentance. That we're going to change. That we're going to make a difference. That we're going to pray. That we will be. The children of God. Now it doesn't mean we're perfect overnight. Does it? Doesn't mean when you come. And you say I accept Christ as my Lord. I repent of my sins. Doesn't mean that you're perfect overnight. But what God wants to begin within you. Is this constant continual work of change and transformation a question should be for us is do we look more like him today than we did yesterday do we look more like him today than we did 20 years ago many of us have been saved for some time if we look no different today than we did 20 years ago in our walk something is dramatically wrong something is dramatically wrong because God wants to continue to initiate change in our hearts and lives. What's happened here? Well, Paul's been ministering. He's been preaching. He's been teaching. 
And the people have heard it and they have responded. They've grown in their faith. And what they have done is that they have rejected the priorities of the world, the priorities of the culture. They have rejected these pagan ideas. They have rejected the goddesses and gods and every other idol you could imagine. They've rejected that. Makes sense, doesn't it? You follow Jesus as Lord, you'll reject all these other things. You'll say, hey, not going to have a part in these other things. And thus they are not partaking in those culturally acceptable practices around them. They said they're not doing it because now they're different. And the expectation is different. Their walk is different. They're not going down to the temple anymore. You know that Diana stuff, Artemis stuff? Not a part of my life anymore. Not going down there. And that begins to set in motion other consequences. Not going down there. You're not going down there. Well, if you're not going down there, that means you're not going to be buying the little shrines. You're not going to be buying the little idols. And if you're not buying the little idols, you're going to be putting people out of business. The silversmiths, have you ever thought of them? Have you ever thought of the workers? You're putting them out of business. But I'm going to say to you that when Christians are changed by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is empowering them and working in their lives, there are certain activities they will not take part in. And yes, the economy itself will be changed by our obedience and by our faith. A few weeks ago, we were studying a life on mission. We were here, uh, the group that I led. And I shared with uh, some of you the challenge, one of the challenges that I faced recently, that I've struggled with, that I'm still wrestling with, even to this night. Um, it concerns some of our positions uh, as it relates to culture itself, as, especially as we have different ones who speak on Southern Baptist's behalf, um, talk about culture. And, and, and I understand this is a very difficult issue today. When you look at the culture around us and how to relate to it and how to maintain the truth, that is difficult. But I've been struggling with it and some of the positions that that have been taken. For example, one of our uh, Southern Baptist uh, entity heads uh, said just recently that there is a bright side of the culture turning the way it has. And the bright side is this, that no longer do we see cultural Christianity, but rather we're beginning to see True Christians, authentic Christianity, stand up. Well, I could agree with him on the surface. What does he mean by that? It means for too long we've had a lot of people, and may we admit in the South and in some of our families, who just associate Christianity by living where they do. They're Christians because of their family, or they're Christians because... Sometimes we've seen that, that right, just a little bit. We've People that profess, but they may never have been changed, but that's what they profess. Now... Let me say this to you. It's not for me to go in and say, yes, this one is, and yes, that one, or no, that one isn't. God hadn't given me quite that authority yet to go in and tell you who is and who is. 
just has it. I agree with him in the idea that cultural Christianity is a bad thing. If we're just Christian because everybody else is Christian, something is wrong. But I believe our Christianity should impact culture and the culture around us. And that's where I am having this wrestling match with myself as I'm thinking through this. Because while I do not believe that we should give in to cultural Christianity, I do believe that Christianity should impact culture. I read this statement the other day by the same individual that said, you know, you can be uh, just as lost in Mayberry as you can Sodom. And I agree, right? There's nothing wrong with that statement. That is absolutely right. You can live in Ruston, Louisiana, a.k.a. Mayberry, right? You can live in Ruston and be just as lost as anybody on the other side of the world. But if I am living out my Christianity and I am impacting the culture around me, impacting the economy itself, then my community should look a whole lot more like Mayberry than it does Sodom. If I am making a difference. Here, what happened, the people were just growing. Look, it, it was not an agenda. It wasn't a cultural war that they were ready to unleash. They weren't like gathering, I don't think, and saying, how can we put the silversmiths out of business? I don't think Paul came together and said, hey, if we just keep on together and boycott these people, I don't really think it was that. I think they just lived their Christianity. I think they were just changed by the Holy Spirit of God and they were so changed that they went out and they lived what they had been taught. They lived what God had said to them. They had lived what God was empowering them to do. And as they lived it, it just naturally had a consequence. And the more of them that did it, because remember Paul's teaching, he was continuing to work in this one location for two years. The more that that teaching, the more that people were introduced to the way the more difference, the more impact for the community. And may we agree today that if Christians lived what they said, Christians lived what the gospel prescribed for them to live, we would see a whole lot difference in our communities, in our culture, and even the economy itself. Don't tell me there wouldn't be a change in the movies that were produced. If those who called themselves Christians lived what they said, don't tell me there wouldn't be establishments that would close down if Christians did not visit those establishments. I say to you that the gospel has a very practical application. It's not just some spiritual over-to-the-side issue that we, that we have in our lives. That is, well, here's our church life, and here's the gospel, and this is what we believe. But when we're over here in this business, it's not quite the same now. We, we don't do the same thing over here with the businesses and the way we live our lives. Listen to me. When a New Testament believer came into the presence of Christ, he or she experienced change. And I don't think that he or she could even begin 
to think about dividing up their lives into spiritual areas and non-spiritual areas. and It never would have occurred to them that they would have left their Christianity there with a congregation of believers that and lived differently when they walked out. That never would have occurred to them. For them, the gospel would have impacted them when they were with the congregation, when they were outside the congregation, when they were walking down the streets, when they were doing their business, Christianity would make a difference in their life. It reminds me in some ways of that question that we used to ask. Some of us remember, remember those stylistic or, or these uh, stylish, I should say, stylish bracelets we used to wear? You, you remember that? WWJD. Some of you wore those things. Tacky looking deals, but you wore them. I wore them. WWJD. What would Jesus do? I think it was high school. It might have been my early college years. I went back and I read that book that really inspired that movement. That book was written, that book was written many, many, many years ago. It's a classic in Christianity and Christian literature. In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. Went and read it. And all it was basically was a story, just a story about how a pastor called together those who would like to take part in this experiment. And he said, I'll meet you after service. And, and I, just, I just want to throw this out there to you and just say, hey, what if, what if we were to ask ourselves before everything that we do, before everything that we say, that we would just ask the question, what would Jesus do? And in that novel, in that book, it records this idea of these average congregants who went out into their businesses, who went out into their families, and they just asked the question, what would Jesus do? And of course, it's just a story. But that story captures the idea of the different things, the different consequences that could occur if we lived with that type of mentality and seriousness about our Christian walk. Basically, it would affect everything. Affect everything. Family, work, community would affect everything. And that's what you see happening here. Just living their Christianity daily. Now, I'm not saying to you that the culture will be happy about it, but when has the culture, which is reigned by the prince of this era, ever been happy about anything that Christ has empowered? God's not called us here to please the culture. God has called us to please His Son, Lord Jesus. And he says, just go out and live your faith. And it may draw hostility. They beg Paul not to go. Wise decision. Paul, this is not where you need to be. You shouldn't should be in the theater. Uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about how Paul is so blessed to have anonymous, for us, they're anonymous, disciples right around him, encouraging him and blessing him. And giving him good counsel. 
Sometimes we think it's just Paul. Yes, Paul was used by God in a great way, but there were so many others that God was using. Didn't even name them in the scripture for us, but they were there. Paul didn't go. It says that they were there, and of course, for two hours, they cried out how great their God was, or goddess. And again, it all was back to the economy. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. It really wasn't their allegiance to Diana Artemis. It was their, it was the economic impact. The economic impact that drove them to this. Well, it says in verse 35, And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open, there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So there's somebody that stands up and says, hey, we, we can't, this is not the way to do this, thankfully. Even though you disagree with this theology, aren't you proud there was somebody who just stepped up and said, you know, this is not the way to do this. We're in danger of actually bringing down the wrath of the Romans and others upon us because of what's going on here. These people, by the way, he says, are innocent. Mark that down and remember that as we move forward into these next few chapters. That this Gentile ruler says, these folks are not blasphemers, they're not robbers, they're innocent. Mark that down because I believe Luke, Dr. Luke, who I think is the only Gentile writer of the New Testament, will go above and beyond to demonstrate that Christians are not a threat to the government, so to speak. They're not trying to, re- they're not trying to lead this grand rebellion. They're, they're not trying to establish their earthly kingdom. I think Luke will remind us because there is never a Gentile ruler, never a Gentile ruler in the book of Acts that will find, that will find these disciples guilty. Never. And Luke includes them all. Why? I think because he is trying to demonstrate they are not an earthly threat. Because get this. Our kingdom is not of this world. Right? When we talk about impacting the economy, impacting the culture, it's not so that we can take over. If somehow you think that's part of it, we have missed the point. We are not here to take over the earthly kingdoms. What we are here to do is to declare the heavenly kingdom. What we are here to do is to declare the kingdom of Christ Jesus and how that reign in people's hearts makes a difference. We're not here simply to capture the leadership position of the nation. What we are here to do is live out our Christianity daily and allow it to affect those people around us as we declare the kingdom of God. I think that's Dr. Luke's message. And I believe... That as we live transformed lives, we will see how the gospel will impact, how the gospel will transform 
everything and everybody we come into contact with. May we be those kind of people. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name tonight. We praise you. And Lord, we are thankful that you empower us to live different lives, to be transformed. Change us, change us, change us so that we can declare your kingdom to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.